We're returning this morning to Leviticus, picking up at chapter 8. So I invite you to turn to Leviticus chapter 8. Remember that the book of Leviticus comes just after the completion of all the work on the tabernacle on its furnishings, the tent of meeting uh, of the nation Israel. Uh, so at the end of Exodus, we see all that finished, the ornate uh, tapestries hung and the beautiful golden uh, utensils and furnishings uh, put up. And there at the end of Exodus, remember, we, we read that God accepted what had been done by the craftsmen, by the workers who had built all that, uh, by his glory cloud that came down and filled the tabernacle. And, and Exodus ended saying that no one was able to go into the tent of meeting because the glory cloud filled the tabernacle, a sign of God's presence. And we saw then that Leviticus, in a sense, answers the question, okay, how is Israel going to draw near to this holy God? Who will be able to go into the temple? Who, 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 will, who will be the mediator? Uh, who will, who will and it provide a way for God's people to come near to him uh, at the tent of meeting? And the First part of the answer to that in Leviticus was those first seven chapters of Leviticus that we looked at that outlined the sacrificial system, all those sacrifices of, uh, of purification, uh, of dedication, of consecration, and of fellowship. And, and, and those were, were the means uh, by which God would be able to meet and be with his people, be in fellowship with them. And we remember that, that we saw as central to those that theme of atonement. Atonement basically meaning to cover over. And so the idea is that the sin of the Israelites is covered over. Atonement is made for it so that they can worship this holy God even though they are sinners. Uh, now that all sets the stage then for chapter 8. Uh, which shifts gears uh, both in the way it's written and in the content. And, and so as I read this uh, chapter aloud, listen for both what the passage says and, and how it says it. I think there's significant truths that we can, we can see uh, in looking at the passage from both those perspectives, what it's saying, the content of it, and then how it happens to be put together under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Leviticus 8. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take Aaron and his sons with him, and the garments, and the anointing oil, and the bull of the sin offering, and the two rams, and the basket of unleavened bread, and assemble all the congregation at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Moses did, as the Lord commanded him, and the congregation was assembled at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Moses said to the congregation, This is the thing that the Lord has commanded to be done. And Moses brought Aaron and his sons and washed them with water. And he put the coat on him and tied the sash around his waist and clothed him with a robe and put the ephod on him and tied the skillfully woven band of the ephod around him, binding it to him with the band. And he placed the breastpiece on him. In the breastpiece he put the urim and the thummim. 
and he set the turban on his head, and on the turban in front he set the golden plate, the holy crown, as the Lord commanded Moses. Then Moses took the anointing oil and anointed the tabernacle and all that was in it and consecrated them, and he sprinkled some of it on the altar seven times and anointed the altar and all its utensils and the basin and its stand to consecrate them. And he poured some of the anointing oil on Aaron's head and anointed him to consecrate him. And Moses brought Aaron's sons and clothed them with coats and tied sashes around their waist and bound caps on them as the Lord commanded Moses. Then he brought the bull of the sin offering and Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the bull of the sin offering and he killed it and Moses took the blood and with his finger put it on the horns of the altar around it and purified the altar and poured out the blood at the base of the altar and consecrated it to make atonement for it. And he took all the fat that was on the entrails and the long lobe of the liver and the two kidneys with their fat and Moses burned them on the altar. But the bull and its skin and its flesh and its dung he burned up with fire outside the camp as the Lord commanded Moses. Then he presented the ram of the burnt offering and Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the ram and he killed it and Moses threw the blood against the sides of the altar. He cut the ram into pieces and Moses burned the head and the pieces and the fat. He washed the entrails and the legs with water and Moses burned the whole ram on the altar. It was a burnt offering with a pleasing aroma, a food offering for the Lord as the Lord commanded Moses. Then he presented the other ram, the ram of ordination, and Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the ram, and he killed it, and Moses took some of its blood and put it on the lobe of Aaron's right ear and on the thumb of his right hand and on the big toe of his right foot. Then he presented Aaron's sons, and Moses put some of the blood on the lobes of their right ears and on the thumbs of their right hands and on the big toes of their right feet. And Moses threw the blood against the sides of the altar, then he took the fat and the fat tail and all the fat that was on the entrails and the long lobe of the liver and the two kidneys with their fat and the right thigh and out of the basket of unleavened bread that was before the Lord, he took one unleavened loaf and one loaf of bread with oil and one wafer and placed them on the pieces of fat and on the right thigh. And he put all these in the hands of Aaron in the hands of his sons and waved them as a wave offering before the Lord. Then Moses took them from their hands and burned them on the altar with the burnt offering. This was an ordination offering with a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. And Moses took the breast and waved it for a wave offering before the Lord. It was Moses' portion of the ram of ordination as the Lord commanded Moses. Then Moses took some of the anointing oil and of the blood that was on the altar and sprinkled it on Aaron and his garments and also on his sons and his sons' garments. So he consecrated Aaron and his garments and his sons and his sons' garments with him. And Moses said to Aaron and his sons, boil the flesh at the entrance of the tent of meeting and there eat it and the bread that is in the basket of ordination offerings as I commanded saying, Aaron and his sons shall eat it. And what remains of the flesh and the bread you shall burn up with fire. You shall not go outside the entrance of the tent of meeting for seven days until the days of your ordination are completed, for it will take seven days to ordain you. As has been done today, the Lord has commanded to be done to make atonement for you. At the entrance of the tent of meeting, you shall remain day and night for seven days, performing what the Lord has charged, 
so that you do not die, for so I have been commanded. And Aaron and his sons did all the things that the Lord commanded by Moses. Well, you probably noticed right away, this is a different type of writing than the first seven chapters of Leviticus. first seven chapters of Leviticus were, were instructions, they were rules. We, we could put them under the category of law, right? If you had a red-letter Old Testament that put in red all the words directly spoken by God, those chapters would be read, right? Uh, but chapter 8 really shifts in more ways than one, doesn't it? So what kind of writing is chapter 8 if it's not law? Narrative. Yes, it's narrative. It tells a story, right? Or, or, and I would sort of encourage you to think of it this, this way. When you see narrative, think of it as drama. And ask yourself, where's the drama here? Okay, what's being acted out in front of you? Now, a lot of this, a lot of what we read here is very strange to us. We, do, we don't worship like this. We're, we're not accustomed to seeing sacrifices and all that, but... But as best you can, visualize what's happening when you read narrative. Uh, a story is being told to you. An historical event is being related to you. And it has a purpose, right? There's a reason why this historical event is remembered. Uh, what makes it significant? Remember, there, there, there's... There's nothing in the scripture that just happens to be there. Okay, that we believe the scripture is inspired by God. This is the word of God, and so he has purposely put into it what he's put into it. So, so we want to realize the significance of, of what this event is about. And you recognized it in the repetition of the term ordination in this chapter, I'm sure. To ordain is to put into an office, uh, to, to appoint someone to a special role. So the first seven chapters of Leviticus told us what all the sacrifices were to be, okay, and how they were to be offered, what, what was to be done with the various pieces of the animals that were killed. Now in chapter eight, this is the who, right? Now, there was a who back in those first seven chapters because those are addressed to the worshipers, the worshipers who are coming to the tent of meeting. God's saying, this is what you should bring, and this is how it should be brought. Well, in chapter 8, now we're talking about the appointing of those who are going to serve as priests in Israel and assist the worshipers in their worship as they bring these sacrifices. And it is important, since God is a holy God, that these people be set apart, that they be sanctified, which basically means to make holy, that they be designated as, as separate. Okay. So that's what's happening here. God is, is adding the final piece now before the beginning, as it were, of the worship of Israel in the next chapter, in chapter 9, we have sort of the inaugural worship service in chapter 9. 
that this is the last last step. Now, now let's before we think specifically about what's happening here a little bit, let's notice how it is conveyed to us. Okay, remember there's no verses in the original documents. Okay, uh, verses are added much much later, uh, around the mid 1500s, I think. Uh, so we want to let the scripture organize itself. And one of the ways that you do that when you're reading narrative is to look for little cues that, in a sense, sort of divide the narrative into scenes or into steps, into a process. And as I read this, you heard a certain phrase over and over again. What did you hear over and over again, often at the end of a paragraph? Anybody spot it? Verse uh, 17, verse 21. As the Lord commanded Moses. That's said over and over again. And in fact, if you look carefully where that comes, it divides the chapter into seven sections. And these seven sections take us through this ordination process, but I think they do more than just sort of help us recognize separate steps where Moses calls the congregation and then he does this and then he does that. And I think there's more than that going on here. Look back again at the beginning of the chapter. Those first uh, verses there, verses two and three, give the words of the Lord to Moses, right? And now look at, at verse 4, after the, uh, he, God tells him to assemble the congregation, look at what verse 4 says. Moses did as the Lord commanded him. Moses did as the Lord commanded him. And then after every one of the steps that Moses follows, it says, as the Lord commanded Moses. As the Lord commanded Moses. Moses is obedient to the Lord. He's obedient to the Lord. I, I think this is being emphasized over and over again because the writer wants us, under the inspiration of the, of the Spirit, the writer wants us to realize the importance of obedience. And obedience isn't just saying you're going to do something. It's doing it. And so it's in the doing of all these things in chapter 8 that Moses is being obedient. Do you see how that relates to your life? That it's, it's not in all the good resolutions you make. It's not even in the, in the sincere repentance, which you should certainly offer when you send. It's not even so much in the learning that should be taking place as you study God's word. It's in the doing of that that your obedience is truly seen. That doing has been 
emphasized to Israel from when they first came out into the wilderness. In Exodus chapter 19, they're there at Mount Sinai. Moses is spoken to by God on Mount Sinai. And then we read in the beginning of chapter 19, about verse 5 or 6, I think it is, Moses came and called the elders of the people and said before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. Okay, he takes what God has said. Here's what he's, he said. He's addressing the elders who are representative of the entire people. And all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. They understand that in a covenant relationship, that's their part. Okay, God has rescued them. God has done all kinds of things for them. Now, their part is to be obedient to him. And so they swear allegiance to God. That's really what they're doing here, isn't it? Exodus 24. In, a, in an incredible, in, in, incredible scene that, that bears more attention than we can give to it right now. The, the covenant is ratified, as it were, with a sacred meal. But in the midst of that, we read again, Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules he's gotten. Okay, that's back in Exodus 20, right? Ten Commandments and the other rules that he's given them. And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Enthusiastically affirming, swearing allegiance, we're going to do it. It says a little bit later on in chapter 24, Moses took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. Okay, so he read out all that we read in Exodus 20 and following. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. Deuteronomy 26, next generation. Moses says to them, you have declared today that the Lord is your God and that you will walk in his ways and keep his statutes and his commandments and his rules and will obey his voice. Obedience is crucial. Jesus said it, right? Perhaps even more bluntly than here. Remember, we looked uh, well, a long time ago now, Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Lip service isn't enough. Paul tells the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Everything you do should be should be done to God's glory. He says it again to the church in Colossae. Colossians 3.17, Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Peter says it. 1 Peter 4, verse 11. Your goal is, he says, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. And remember that acknowledging dominion always means obedience. Or we looked in 1 John chapter 2 not that long ago. The world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever.
Obedience is crucial. Moses is a model for obedience here. Now, he's not perfect, right? Okay, I'm not saying that. Nor am I saying that, that obedience in a biblical sense is just following some example. Because obedience to the Lord takes more than that. Okay, all of us can try to follow an example, try to turn over a new leaf. You know, unbelievers can do that. But remember, God demands complete obedience. Perfect obedience. In this one instance, Moses is perfectly obedient to the commands of the Lord. You can go back to Exodus. Exodus 28, I believe it is. And it tells how you're supposed to ordain the priest. And Moses follows the directions. He's perfectly obedient. Now, if it were the case that perfect obedience is the way we earn our salvation, we'd all be in trouble, though, wouldn't we? Moses would be. You may remember, he, he doesn't get to enter the promised land because he sinned against the command of the Lord. And in fact, if we shift from looking at Moses to looking at the focus of this ordination, Aaron, becomes even more apparent, doesn't it? Remember Moses up on Mount Sinai got all the instructions about how to make the tabernacle, precise directions about the materials and, and how all these things were to be made by the various craftsmen, the carpenters and carvers and metal workers and everything. Got instructions about how to ordain the priest, these instructions that he follows here in our verse. And what's happening down in the camp? What's happening down at the foot of the mountain? Aaron is helping the Israelites create an idol. The man who is supposed to be high priest is, at least to an extent, leading the people in idolatry. Probably his sons as well. Maybe not, we're not told, but Aaron is definitely up to his neck in that. He, he tried to belie that, right? Remember when Moses confronts him, when he comes down from the mountain and confronts him, Aaron says something like, well, you know, the people gave me all this gold and I threw it in the fire and out came this idol. Of course, we know that didn't happen. How is it? How is it that we can now be reading of his ordination, of his being set apart for this holy, holy service when he has sinned so grievously in the past? Well, we could look at some of these sacrifices and, and 
and think, well, it's in the sacrifices that this happens. And certainly the sacrifices, remember, do represent spiritual truths. That first sacrifice called the sin offering might be, when you read sin offering, always think of purification offering, okay? It's an offering that's given to purify. Uh, well, you remember in, in our text, Moses anoints the altar and and others, uh, other items with the blood of that sacrifice. It, it's sort of like, okay, these, this, this furniture in the tabernacle, it, it's been tainted by human contact because human beings are sinners, and so it has to be ritually purified. And, and you remember that, that blood with oil is applied to Aaron and, and his sons at the end of that, and and you have the ascension sacrifice, the, the, the sacrifice that goes totally up in smoke there to symbolize consecration to the Lord. And you have the fellowship offering. That's really what the ordination offering, the, the third one given is. It's, it's a peace offering. It's a fellowship offering because they then eat some of that. But remember, those sacrifices all just point to spiritual reality. They're not saving in and of themselves. They're pointing beyond themselves. They're preparing the people of Israel and they're preparing us. And who are they preparing us for? Well, of course, it's Jesus, right? All this that we read about enables us enables the Jews of John the Baptist's day to know what he means when he says, there's the Son of God, there, there's the Lamb of God. He takes away the sins of the world. They know what he's talking about because they know the Old Testament. They understand that these pictures, these images, are to help us understand what God has done for us in Christ. That's how Aaron ultimately can be ordained, isn't it? It's because of the work of Christ. It's because of the work of Christ. The writer of Hebrews picks up on this. Hebrews chapter 5, which is a great Hebrews is a great book to read in helping you understand the sacrificial system of the Old Testament and vice versa. And he compares Jesus to the high priest that we're reading about here. He says in chapter 5, Every high priest chosen from among men is appointed, that is ordained, to act in behalf of men in relation to God. The writer of Hebrews points out that this enables him to minister to the people that he's serving because he knows what it is to be tempted himself. He can sympathize with the ignorant and the wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. And he goes on to say, and because of that, he, he has to offer sacrifices for himself as well. Before the priest can offer sacrifices for the people, these sacrifices have to be offered for them because they're sinners. But then he goes on to say, 
but Jesus Christ was not appointed by men, but appointed by the one who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And what is it that Hebrews calls our attention to about Jesus' ministry? Listen to this. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. That is astounding, isn't it? Now, it doesn't say he disobeyed and then learned to obey. Okay? So this is not in any way implying that, that Jesus sinned. But he had to learn obedience through what he said. Doesn't that emphasize the fact that obedience is a process? It's something you do. It's a way you live. So Jesus didn't just come to earth and then the next day offer his life as a sacrifice. He lived a holy life. He learned obedience. And notice what it's accompanied with, suffering. You will learn obedience through suffering if you follow Christ. I mean, some things we find easy to do, Right? If your parent asks you, please have some dessert after supper, probably you're eager to obey that. Right? If your boss says, please accept the bonus this year. But obedience is really learned when it costs something, isn't it? That's when you really learn to obey God. Remember our study of Daniel? Daniel learned obedience in exile, separated from his family, his home, all that was familiar to him, living in a pagan land as an alien. He learned obedience through suffering. You will learn obedience through suffering. Some of you know what I'm talking about because you, you can look back and, and see ways that you've learned obedience through suffering. I, I think this is part of the reason why Paul can say on one occasion, I count it all joy. Okay, I know joy when I'm in prison. Why James can say to believers, Count it joy when you suffer, because God is working in you to build patience, to build character. He's, in other words, making you like himself. Christ learned obedience through what he suffered. It's not, Hebrews 7 says, that he has a need to offer sacrifices for himself. That is not the case. Nor does he have to keep offering sacrifices over and over again for his people. He offers his sacrifice once for all when he offered up himself. And so we see in Leviticus 8, sort of an earthly drama 
that reflects the spiritual reality more real than this earthly drama, that spiritual reality of what God has done in Christ. Here it is in Hebrews 9. When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, if these blood sacrifices could satisfy ritual purity rules that God has set up so that the priest could serve in the tabernacle, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. There's the real purification you need, right? Not some outward purification that makes you look good on the outside. You need that inner purification. It purifies your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. How does it purify your conscience from your dead works? Well, by, by your knowing that your sins are forgiven in Christ. God looks at you and he sees not your sin, but the righteousness of his son. And that frees you then to serve the living God. Paul puts it this way in Romans 5, as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. And here's the result then. Follow this. Sin reigned in death. As sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You're living in one world or the other here in this verse. Either you're living in sin which reigns in death. Everything about sin is death-producing in you. Or grace is reigning in you through righteousness. Whose righteousness? Your righteousness? Is it that God says, if you're righteous, I'll show you grace? No, it's the opposite, isn't it? You're a sinner, and so I'm going to show you grace. I'm going to clothe you in the righteousness of my son, having taken your sin and put it on him. So grace rules or reigns through righteousness. And what's the outcome of that way of life? What well, leads to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And that's the life of obedience, isn't it? Because now we realize it's not an obedience based on my strength. It's not an obedience based on my, my goodness. It's an obedience based on the goodness of Christ and in his power. Now you're going to fail in that. Right? But we already know. What to remember in that case, don't we, from 1 John? 
Again, chapter 2. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. I want you to obey. I want you to learn obedience through suffering. I want you to grow in righteousness. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. It's with the assurance that you are forgiven in Christ that you're freed to live in obedience to him. Okay, keep that order in your mind, okay? Keep that order in your mind. It's so easy for the world to trick us into thinking that our salvation somehow depends on what we do. Okay, that's the way the world judges us all the time. That's the way your enemies judge you. That's the way sometimes your friends are going to judge you. But Christ doesn't judge you that way because he's taken the judgment on himself. And, and the good news of the gospel is that we are forgiven and enabled by his spirit then ourselves to learn obedience. I don't know how the Lord's going to teach you obedience in your life. I don't know what suffering may be ahead for you. It may be a physical suffering. It may be an emotional suffering. It may be a spiritual struggle. But when you're in the, in the midst of that suffering, when you're learning obedience and suffering, remember that that's not a sign that God has forgotten you. That's actually a sign that God is working in you. All those years that Daniel suffered under those hard taskmasters in that foreign country. Sometimes having to put his very life on the line. God is working into him. He, he, he was working into him obedience and righteousness. And making him a, a stalwart warrior for the kingdom of God. That's what God wants to do in you. Wants to teach you obedience through your suffering so that it will glorify God and, and ultimately be good for you. Because that suffering is, is not for the sake of, of destroying you, but as the Bible says elsewhere, is rather for refining you. The dross is being burned away so that the gold can shine in your life. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we're not uh, called to be priests in the sense of Aaron and his sons here, but we are called to holiness. And I pray that you would help us to remember that we live in a world which knows very little of holiness, which even mocks holiness. We live in a world which is all about avoiding suffering doing its best to avoid anything painful, anything unpleasant. But we follow a Lord who suffered on our behalf. So I pray that you would, pray that you would strengthen us to learn obedience through suffering. We want that, Lord, because we know that we'll glorify you. 
We want to be those who, who are fighting the good fight, as Paul says. Who are running the race, not just sitting idly by the side. So enable us, Lord, to learn obedience through suffering for your glory. And even this week, help us to see the ways that you're doing this in our hearts and lives. And help us to be an encouragement to one another in this as well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.